Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, as we are rolling on once again on the road to 100 episodes. As always, I want to thank all of our loyal listeners for listening to the podcast, sharing out on social media, and having conversations about these topics and more there in your school districts. I can't thank you enough for all you do to support this work and this effort to create better schools for kids. In this episode, episode number 93, very excited to bring you a conversation that I had with John Tanner, who's an author, speaker, and veteran educational researcher. His company, Brave Ed, talks about a benefit-based accountability framework that helps schools, communities, and policymakers shift the narrative from compliance to students and future benefits. This was a great conversation, as John also talks about how districts can move from a portrait of a graduate or a portrait of a learner to a full-on benefits-based accountability system that provides stakeholders with a common vocabulary and also uses an accountability engine for future school success. As John Tanner says, the most successful organizations in the world rely on benefits-based accountability, so why not K-12 schools? So let's jump right in. My conversation with John Tanner begins right after this quick promo from the Education Podcast Network. I'm Josh Schwartz. And I'm William Millingworth. Host of the High Tech Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reimagined Schools Podcast. Very excited to bring you another great episode today. My special guest is an educational writer and thought leader. He's also the founder of Brave Ed, an educational organization designed to help school districts with true accountability with the benefits-based accountability framework. Special welcome to John Tanner. How are you, John? Hi, great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm a big fan of of what you're doing. Uh, You've been working now, I think, in eight different states, helping school districts uh, really understand what accountability means. And uh, I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to dive in. But I think before we really get rolling here, maybe you can uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, uh, which is really on the testing side, and how you really kind of had your own aha moment to really move more toward accountability. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, Yeah, I I got started in testing uh, 30 years ago, uh, and it was was a little bit accidental, to be truthful. I, I was more interested in... Uh, sort of the function of accountability and and the role that accountability was going to play in the public school system. Uh, I had some great mentors who uh, even back then saw that testing was going to be the primary vehicle uh, by which that would occur. And there were some real concerns about that. And uh, so they asked me to learn that world. And I did and found it fascinating, wound up as a state test director, wound up working for a big publisher. And the, 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 the concern that I always had was that there, there were these goals of accountability, which, I mean, the rhetoric was always great. We want schools to become these continuous improvement uh, monsters and engines. We want them to constantly uh, uh, find ways to shape themselves for the future and so on. And so all of the accountability rhetoric was great, but the actual function uh, that was being accomplished or functions that were being accomplished through testing never matched up to the rhetoric. And, and over time, as I began to realize that testing as a research instrument 
wasn't going to get us there. It caused a, a real series of um, sort of self-reflections and, and, and uh, uh, really questioning what I'd been taught and trained for the first half of my career. So 14, 15 years ago, I began to rethink this idea and say, well, what if there were no tests? What, what would accountability look like in schools? And I had to go look at lots of different kinds of organizations that are healthy organizations that are well-functioning, that are serving their stakeholder needs, that are able to shape themselves for the future and ask a simple question, which is, is there some underlying set of frameworks that these organizations are using to uh, uh, build themselves and shape themselves for the future? And the, the great thing was the answer is yes, they're surprisingly simple, very powerful, very leverageable. And so that then began this quest of, of saying, well, then how in the world can we somehow uh, bring that thinking to bear uh, for those of us in education. You know, outside of, of school systems, uh, talking about accountability is not a bad thing. It's actually a positive thing in the, in the nonprofit sector or the business community. Uh, I'm a former superintendent, spent 15 years in that job in Illinois. And I'll be honest with you, whenever the term accountability came up, <laughs> quite frankly, those were fighting words. It had such a negative connotation uh, around uh, how good or how poorly your school was doing. And I, you know, in looking at your work, there's such a disconnect uh, from, from educators and what accountability truly could be. No, that's exactly right. And when you, when you treat accountability as a discipline, as something that we can study and improve on and, uh, and analyze and critique, it, it, it changes everything. What emerges is that there are uh, different accountabilities for very different functions that we have in society and within organizations. And we have, for example, um, we have uh, 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 punishment-based accountabilities, which we call protectionist. And, and these serve a very rational purpose. We have FERPA in schools. We don't want to release kids' private data. And, and so we have to comply with FERPA. And that's a perfectly rational uh, thing to do or criminal background checks or any number of things. But just because a school has complied with FERPA and, and hasn't employed anybody who can't pass a criminal background check doesn't automatically mean you're a great school with great teachers. Uh, those things are uh, handled by another set of accountabilities that we call uh, the benefits-based accountabilities. And those accountabilities are there to shape the organization for the future and make sure that it can become as great as it possibly can. And the, the great mistake we've made in education is thinking that the compliance-based protectionist accountabilities can help schools become great. There has never been a situation that we can find where any organization made itself great through a compliance-based uh, protectionist accountability. Any organization that has ever been able to become greater than it is going forward has always used these benefits-based accountabilities to do it. So we have a, a square peg in a round hole problem and we keep pounding on that over and over and, and it's, it, there's no wonder that we aren't um, uh, supporting schools as these, again, continuous improvement engines, because we picked an accountability that's designed to never have anything to do with that. Yeah, and another thing I found fascinating in reading some of your work is education is really the only profession in which we let people outside of education determine the accountability framework for you know, de defining who's good and who's, who's, who's bad. And, you know, if you're talking about doing accountability in a hospital, as an example, you're not going to have people outside of the, the health industry, you know, determining the metrics for whether or not it's, it's a good hospital or a bad hospital. How did we get to this point? I mean, if you want to kind of 
walk us through a timeline or, you know, where did it go off the rails? That is a, a, a fabulous um, sociological undertaking to try to answer that. Uh, let me see if I can do it in a shorthand version and not being a sociologist or a historian, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to others to do the more um, thorough interpretations and, and, and the more accurate ones. But uh, it, it's, it's an odd cultural or ar odd artifact of educational culture that uh, really started, I think, in the 1850s when Horace Mann said, we want women to come into the workforce and teach. The Massachusetts School Board originally said, absolutely not. That's, that's not going to happen. And when he went back a few years later, the school board said, yeah, we'll let that happen. And the rationale was because we can pay women a whole lot less than we can pay men. And what we'll do is we'll just control them. We'll create uh, circumstances and conditions in which we won't let them uh, uh, screw up in, 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 a, in a sense. And that began this very odd cultural um, attitude towards the, the public education field that I don't think we've ever gotten out of. And there are lots of other moments in the process that you could identify. And each of those has continued to act from that uh, perspective of, of almost command and, and, and control. Uh, and so we've wound up with this sort of very odd dysfunctional relationship uh, with the public because the public feels that uh, uh, education continues to be something that needs to be controlled. It needs to be something that can be standardized. And who best to do that than those outside of education who are the high paid, uh, really smart types of folks. So I, I think there's a very odd sociological disconnect. And again, what we're trying to do by thinking in terms of benefits-based accountabilities is gain control of that narrative and make sure that narrative goes back onto the principal and back onto the teachers so that the very disempowering gestures that we've been faced with for a very long time, uh, we can start to turn the table on that and create very empowering gestures because to the degree we do that and get control of that narrative, I think a lot of the problems that we face from outsiders coming in and expressing opinions and so on, uh, not that we don't want their opinions, but you know, I can't interpret an x-ray. That requires a real great radiologist to do it. And we have that same expertise in schools. And once people can see that we can apply that uh, uh, well, I think we start to change the narrative and move things in a positive direction. And I think that's well said. And another thing that I find fascinating is um, the general public in terms of education has really been trained to kind of follow this label labeling type of system. You know, in Kentucky, we have stars. So you're a five-star school, a four-star school. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a big college basketball fan here in Kentucky, and I'm always following uh, the recruiting process. And I, I always try to figure out what's the difference between a five-star recruit and a four-star recruit. And, you know, I think you also have those same conversations. What's the difference between a five-star school and a four-star school? And in the college basketball example, those two players are both going to be really good players. But how do you distinguish one from another if you have some type of labeling, whether it's a, a letter grade or a star system or circle or whatever nonsensical thing uh, pol policymakers come up with? So the I think the big um, I think the big problem with these labeling systems is that they hide the underlying truths of what's going on in an organization in a very simplistic way. You can imagine graduation rates, and you can imagine uh, a school that's going to graduate all the kids every year, uh, no matter what the school does. Given uh, that the parents have uh, significant incomes, they have professional jobs, 
they all had a good positive experience when they were in schools. And so the school could essentially shut down in December. And those kids are still going to find a way to graduate. That's just uh, very much in the culture of the students. So this, the school itself doesn't have a whole lot to do with that graduation rate. There are lots of other metrics that will mean something, but that one doesn't. Whereas you could think of a school that serves a lot of uh, in a very challenging environment, and that school uh, uh, graduates a huge number of the students who are really at high risk for dropping out. Well, what a school grade would say, or a school or stars or whatever it is a, a state might be using, is they would declare that school that was really doing a fine job at keeping kids in school who would normally drop out, they get a failing grade, they get one star. And the school that um, graduates all the kids every year, no matter what, they're going to get four or five stars. And so not only do these systems, um, unlike the college example you used, uh, they don't not only don't tell the truth about what's going on, uh, but they often say the wrong things. They, they steer us in the wrong direction. They, they tell falsehoods unintentionally. I mean, these were mostly set up with really good intentions. But, but unlike the, the star system for basketball players, where there's not a lot of difference between a four or five, three star, however you want to look at it, uh, the difference between a school that gets five stars and a school that gets one stars, those may both be completely false messages. And the more we act on those as if they're true, the less effective the school is going to be. Just as if we said, um, uh, I'm going to pretend that this one star recruit, uh, or I'd be a no star recruit. I never was a great basketball player. If you somehow assumed I was a five star recruit, you'd be making a horrible decision by recruiting me. Or if you assumed that a five star recruit was a one star recruit, you'd be making a horrible decision at, at recruiting uh, or not recruiting them. Again, we're, we're, we're left with, with false understandings of what's going on in schools. And that's where I think an enormous amount of the damage um, comes from. And, you know, I think we have to talk about the testing piece whenever you talk about accountability in schools. And, and I've heard you say, or either I read this, something that you had written, that testing is not really the issue but it's also not the answer and it's not the solution. It's just, I guess it's just a necessary evil. And that's kind of become the foundation of, of, you know, this letter system or the star system that we're going to use to label schools. Yeah. Testing, standardized testing has a fascinating history. I mean, it's got, uh, if people want to go back and look at the history, it's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, many of the, the earlier proponents of standardized testing, IQ testing, and then the original Stanford uh, achievement test series, which came out in 1921, these were uh, eugenicists. These were people who very much believed in uh, a fundamental difference in races and genders. These were people who uh, had some ideas that are absolutely, uh, uh, even at their time, controversy, controversial and from our perspective, really reprehensible. And over time, these instruments were able to be uh, revised and refined to where they could come to serve a research function in the hands of a thoughtful researcher, but they have never been available as a judgment tool. And yet that is exactly the way that uh, we have a tendency to, to use them. So, so what we, the way we would say it is that we're not anti-standardized testing, uh, but we think standardized testing ought to be left in the hands of a researcher or someone who understands that the only way to interpret any standardized test score is with a lot of other data and a lot of other evidence lying around. Never, ever, ever on its, its own. So um, I, I wouldn't say it's a necessary evil we have to have around forever. We, we certainly don't need to 
to spend what a billion and a half or two billion dollars a year, however much we spend on these state testing programs, that's just a colossal waste of of money and and resources. And the hands of thoughtful researchers, they could reduce that to a couple hundred million bucks a year, still do their research, get the information that we can derive from that, um, and then answer the more important questions, which are not in a standardized test, which is who's learning and and what are they learning? And uh, when kids aren't learning, why are they not learning? And what are we gonna do about it? And I mean, none of those answers that are absolutely critical from a pedagogical lens, none of those are available from a standardized test score. And yet what we've been told to do is pretend that they are and, and use those tests in that fashion. We, we might as well, again, it's, it's not just a square peg round hole piece. You know, you and I might as well be uh, declare ourselves radiologists and go interpret x-rays. Uh, the odds of us ever being accurate are going to be pretty slim. And I think that's a great segue into the who. Uh, you know, whenever you go into a school district to help with the benefits-based accountability framework, my guess would be you spend a lot of time talking about the benefits. You know, who is going to benefit the most from this type of system? And how do you dig around and find these benefits and identify those as you begin the work to, to create better schools? I love the question. Uh, the, the very best way we've found to do that for schools is to sit down with groups of parents and students and say, tell us about the hopes and dreams that you have for this child. Tell us about your hopes and dreams for your future, for this year, for this uh, month, uh, whatever it happens to be. Um, because what that does is it gives us the right language for a benefit. It, it, it helps us understand how the stakeholder is perceiving uh, the schools in language that can make sense to the both of us. Um, uh, every technology company does this brilliantly. Tim Cook didn't come out years ago when the iPhone batteries were so bad and, and talk about how much, how the nickel cadmium mix was off or he didn't come at us with all this technical information and we didn't go to him with all that technical information because we didn't have it. We said, we need better batteries and longer battery life. And Tim Cook said, I get it. I understand what you're saying. And they went back inside the organization and tried to figure that out. And eventually he came out and said, we're going to get you a better battery. Hopes and dreams language gives us the right level of understanding so that when we are sitting with a stakeholder, we can have a conversation about what is meaningful to that stakeholder and not uh, talk down to them, not be disrespectful. The most disrespectful thing we can do is not talk at the level of benefit, just vomit out tons of data in school report cards or, uh, you know, and somehow in the name of transparency, here's a million data points about our organization. There's no way that a non-technical stakeholder can make sense of that and know what that means. There's no way they can look at the laundry list of all the things we're doing and, and ascertain if we're doing the right things or not. Uh, what they can do is when it comes to the benefit of engaging kids in meaningful work or making sure that kids have an opportunity on a regular basis to express their creativity or going deep or getting a good foundation in the basics, all of which parents tell you are, are, are benefits they expect. And of course, safety is always at the top of the list. Uh, those are the right levels at which to have those conversations and partner together to make sure that the school has the capacity to deliver those and that the kids are in fact achieving them. But as soon as we take one step into the technical language or the technical data, or which is how we've communicated about schools for a century, 
uh, all of our stakeholders are going to be lost. They're not going to have the opportunity to partner with or engage with the school in a meaningful way. And, you know, I want to be very clear here to distinguish the difference between um, a benefits-based accountability framework and what a lot of schools have done already with a portrait of a graduate or a portrait of a learner. Uh, you know, a portrait of a graduate is a great thing, and I'm glad that it's building momentum, but that's really about, you know, setting some goals, uh, long-term goals for students upon uh, the school experience as they complete. But the accountability system is going to be different in, in the fact that you're really going to take a deeper dive and really search for those benefits and how to kind of deliver, you know, what are the deliverables for that accountability framework? Uh, yeah, I, I think the portrait of a graduate or portrait of a learner is great, especially in, in Kentucky where you are, because there's been an incredible amount of attention paid to that. It, it, the, what we've discovered in our, our, our research is that as of today, and this will absolutely change over time, but as of today, uh, the American public identifies on a regular basis 31 benefits that they um, expect from schools. Again, uh, we curate that list. We don't own it. We just use it as a starting point for our work. But if, if you imagine those 31 benefits and imagine making a list of them, we would be able to, to, to bring in a portrait of a graduate or uh, a profile of a learner or any of these kinds of things. All of the strategic uh, plan goals that a, a district might have, all of the um, uh, all of the good things they're trying to accomplish, and they'll map in perfectly to one or more of those 31 benefits. And so what it does is it takes something like the profile of a graduate, and as opposed to being uh, something that we can put on a wall and and have great meaning but aspire to, we, we can actually build that into an accountability environment so that when a school says we want to be accountable for the attributes of a graduate, uh, we really can help them find ways to be deeply accountable for uh, putting the capacity in place to see that those attributes occur. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up because it's it, it, it takes all of those things that historically may have been aphoristic and it, it makes them real. It, it makes them not nice things to have in school or wouldn't it be great if it makes them the reason and the purpose that the school exists. And you know, one of the districts that you've worked with here in Kentucky is Kenton County. And the Kenton County School District is, is doing some great things there. So shout out to them. But if you go to their website, I mean, they have an entire page devoted to the community-based accountability system. And they really, really identify four steps to true accountability, beginning with an accountability engine, uh, creating pillars and key questions, signaling, and then doing an annual summary as to you know kind of where they're at a, a, as a checkpoint so let's kind of take those if we could one by one this concept of an accountability engine you know can, can you kind of walk us through what that means and what that looks like sure and and i like that they use those four because those are actually the four frameworks that's it there are no more frameworks that, that organizations use so uh, what we noticed when um when 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 i originally started doing the research and saying let's see if i can get into the literature of of accountability. Let's assume that there's something like that out there. I was stunned that the literature is actually extraordinarily thin and not very well documented at all. Most accountability conversations are around the, the internal accountability that we have as an employee of an organization and the annual evaluation and some of those kinds of things. Or SMART goals, which everybody has heard about. Uh, but SMART goals were invented in the 60s to keep uh, people doing repetitive tasks on task. That's a terrible model to use 
for anything that has a strategic component to it. But other than that, there's not a lot of literature. And so we had to look and watch at how uh, really effective leaders uh, deal with these moments of accountability. And what we noticed over and over again is, is that they, they go through a, a simple process, which is to say, here's the benefit that we exist to provide. Here is uh, or, or are the capacities that we need to put in place or improve upon in order to see more of that benefit occur. Here's what we'll accept as evidence, because this has to be a deeply and richly evidentiary process. Here's what we're, we will accept as evidence that the benefit is what we said it needs to be. And here are the kinds of decisions that we'll need to make in order to make that happen. That's all the accountability engine is, is a discipline that helps uh, educators think through that process. It, it's particularly important for education because we become so accustomed to leading with the data that, that, that we're gonna fling data out there and hope that it can make sense to people. And even when educators first start thinking through the benefits lens, uh, the first inclination is to ask, well, how are we gonna measure that? And that's the absolute wrong uh, question to ask out of the gate. The right question is, what capacities do we need to place, uh, put in place and what might we observe that would be evidence that the capacity is in place. And so the accountability engine is a discipline that helps us uh, make sure we keep our, our, all of our ducks in a row as we try to think about uh, answering that question for what should we be accountable. Uh, let's see, you said there was accountability engine, there was signaling, which was the next piece. One of the other things that we noticed about really great leaders as they would deal with their accountability moments is that, um, they were constantly talking about the future. Um, and this, this felt very strange to us as educators because this is, you know, we, we've always been trained to have a, a backwards facing lens on the world. We look back at test scores, we look back at attendance data, we make judgments about the past, and then we, we make this kind of awkward attempt to think about that going forward. That isn't how effective organizations or organizations with a good healthy accountability environment do it. Instead, they, they look ahead, they say, we said we need to have this capacity in place within the next two years. Uh, what are the odds that we're going to get there? They're great. We're, we're on track. Or uh, as, as Tim Cook did regarding the iPhone batteries, he had to come out a couple months later and say, listen, this is proving to be a real challenge. And you're going to hear about it in the press. And I, don't, I want you to hear it from me. This is a challenge. We're still on track. But we are going to have to make some adjustments in order to get there. And what we noticed is that, that these signals were not about today. They were about that future moment, kind of like the, 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 the guy up in the mast on a, on a sailing ship, looking out on the horizon and sending signals to say, well, let's constantly think about what's ahead and what we're gonna have to do and how we're gonna have to steer this thing in order to get to where we want to go. And again, this is a, this is a framework because in education, we aren't good at signaling. We've been trained and taught and, and conditioned to constantly think about the rear view mirror. And I think the one of the really neat ways to think about, um, I, I guess, a mental model that we like to use is, is to, to think about compliance, protectionist accountabilities as a dot in a rearview mirror in a car, and these benefits-based accountabilities as the windshield and the horizon and where we're trying to, to get to. I mean, they're, 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 and so when we think about signaling, we're looking out on the horizon where we said we need to go and saying, uh, what are the odds that we're going to get there? And if they're not great, what are we doing in order to adjust? The final framework is the annual summary, not a report, an annual summary. 
And what we want to be able to do there is to tell the story of the year. You know, we, we hear a lot about, um, uh, we hear a lot about, uh, for example, Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders. It's a very famous document he puts out. And what he's doing is he's summarizing the year. But if you look at most of the language, most of the language is about the future. It's about what's yet to come. And so this is, this is a formal opportunity on an annual basis to say, here is the narrative of where we've been and here is where uh, we are headed. And one of the, one of the things that uh, we've noticed in, in this particular framework is that board, uh, boards in particular have said, we wanna see a three-year lens. We wanna see back a year and ahead too. So that again, this is, a, this is both a summary of where we've been, but also a summary of where we're going so that this forward facing orientation becomes a, a critical and a significant part of the organization. So th those are the, 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 the four big frameworks, which is benefits, the accountability engine, uh, signaling and the annual summary. And then I guess an area that school districts can customize what they're doing. The framework, of course, is going to be the same, but every district's going to look a little bit different because they're going to go through their pillars and key questions. And that's going to provide a little bit of, um, you know, authenticity and difference from district to district. Was that a fair assessment? Uh, and from school to school. One of the things that one of the things that we encourage uh, uh, schools that come on board to do is to start with that list of 31 benefits, but not to treat it as um, universal or as where they'll end up. It gets them started uh, very quickly so they can start to see the effect of the work almost immediately. But parallel to that, they need to go engage with their communities to ask that question about hopes and dreams to, so that uh, six, eight, 12 months from now, those, those two paths can converge and what we find you know, 90% of the time is that they're, they're already deeply aligned. And so that's, that, that's, that's been really good news because we don't have to wait for a year or a year and a half for a school or district to begin the work. So, uh, but there has to be that deep engagement with um, communities. The, the exciting thing to us and something that we had hoped for, but, 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 but we didn't want to control for is that when you look at the hotel industry or you look at the medical industry or you look at the legal world, those professions, like all professions, exist to produce or to provide a finite set of benefits to their stakeholders. And, and, and you know, lawyers don't put out uh, forest fires. That's for rangers. And uh, hotels don't get kids ready to become good citizens. That's our job in schools. And so these, these lists of benefits very much defined professions. And, and they're always finite. It's not, there aren't hundreds of them. In any case, the hospitals are about a dozen, um, you know, schools right now are at 31 and 30 has been a pretty consistent number for the, 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 the time that we've been doing this. I don't know how many there will be in the future. I don't control that. That is controlled entirely by asking that question of stakeholders and, and gathering the information. But what is, but while, while schools and districts obviously have the right, because this is their system, to adjust and to tweak, uh, when we have benefits that we share, that provides us the opportunity to aggregate which, and, and satisfy the policy needs, because policymakers need to know where to focus their attention, where policies are warranted, where policies are desperately needed, um, and what those policies can look like. And the way that all of these other professions communicate with policymakers is through 
identifying what benefits are not being met as fully as they should and where policies would be useful in order to uh, help make that happen. And so to the degree that, you know, a thousand campuses across America can, can agree on what those benefits ought to be, that provides uh, a lens into public ed for policymakers that can be very powerful in that regard. And what we get excited about is we like watching that happen, not from a top-down perspective, everybody's got to work with this list of benefits. We like watching that happen very organically from the bottom up as parents and students from all over the country say, these are the benefits that are important that define public education. And as they trickle up, then that gives policymakers wonderful insights and very meaningful insights into uh, where schools are currently struggling, where they are likely to struggle in the future, and where policies are unnecessary or unwarranted because things are uh, actually going uh, uh, reasonably well in the schools and there's no reason to spend money. Now, consider that against what we do now, which is create these big, broad, monolithic policies that are very expensive, very difficult to track, very difficult to uh, uh, understand or gauge the impact, uh, and that really result in lots of complaining and grousing that nobody's getting their money's worth. Uh, that doesn't happen in medicine. It doesn't happen in law. It doesn't happen in other professions because they use this benefits-based approach to communicate their needs to policymakers. We've never done that. And when we can start, I think that will be a big step uh, towards a much better situation. Well, John, it's been a fascinating conversation. I I'm a big fan of your work. And you can learn more by going to the website at Brave. Uh, slash ed.com. You can also follow John on Twitter at testsensejt. Um, so as we wrap it up, uh, we have a lot of superintendents around the country that listen to the podcast and big shout out to all those folks that are doing uh, such an amazing job uh, throughout COVID and now uh, returning to normal, we hope in a lot of places. What is the elevator speech to them or what can, can you give them a little bit of a glimpse as to what it would look like if you come into their school district and help them with this framework? Sure, and I'll, and I'll do that by just the introductory piece that I think is the mo one of the most powerful leverageable pieces you can do in 30 minutes. Uh, uh, if you can take the list of 31 benefits and do a quick inventory of your system, of your school or your district, you will have more information than you've ever had before about your school or district, more capacity to, to, to speak about it and, and speak with as opposed to to your stakeholders, uh, and also uh, have insights into what the future is gonna look like in ways that you never did before. And you can do that by answering just a couple of questions. If you take an educational benefit and you ask yourself, are we currently involved in uh, really building capacity regarded to, regarding or related to this benefit, yes or no? If it's a yes, then ask some other simple questions like, uh, how are we doing relative to this? When did we expect that effect to be in place? And are we uh, on track? And then finally, look across all of those benefits. And because they're in language that your stakeholders can understand, go to them and ask them, which of these benefits do they believe you're doing a good job on? And which of these benefits do they believe you ought to be focused on? And at that moment, you will have insights into what's going on. 30 minutes is all that takes. You will have insights into uh, the, the workings of your campus or your district that you've never had before. And, and you can begin making different decisions this afternoon uh, or the next day based on being able to view and examine your schools from a lens you've never had before. 
Uh, our work is all based on getting schools to be able to do that really efficiently, very effectively, and with a high degree of fidelity. But that initial step you can do right now uh, with a piece of paper and, and a few minutes. And I, I would encourage everyone to do just that. Well, great stuff, John. Once again, thanks for being here. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Once again, a big thank you goes out to John Tanner. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at TestSenseJT and check out the Brave Ed website at brave-ed.com. If you're enjoying these episodes and want to help support my work, you can now go to the Buy Me a Coffee link. You can find that in my Twitter bio, or you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Dr. Greg Goins to leave a comment about your favorite guests and episodes. And until next time, folks, be sure to like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Most importantly, keep fighting for change in your school.